This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, you and I were talking before we started recording. First of all, we, we, we are going to deliver on our promise of not talking about chapter openings this week. <laughs> yes! But we were talking about a topic that we, you and I talked about a long time ago in a podcast that I hosted called The Author Biz. We were talking about royalties and how authors get paid from book sales and things like that. And you mentioned a conversation that you had had with um, a reader of yours or, or a fan or you know somebody who interacts with you via email, presumably reads and your books and, and likes your works. Of- listener of this podcast. Okay. And, and who listens yeah. to the podcast yes. as, as well. And, you know, one of the, one of the questions he asks, and you probably get this question from time to time is what can I do to support you? And you, in your conversation with, with him that, and you related this to me as well. And I found it fascinating in, in my own mind, I could make the math work, but I think a lot of people don't understand this. And it's the idea of Every so often we'll talk about Patreon and you'll say things like, even at the $3 level. And, you know, if you can give something that's great, and this is not a pitch to go and sign up for Patreon or anything, it's really, it's it's a correlation between making a donation through something like Patreon or buying a book for $20. So if you, if someone were to buy your latest hardback at Barnes and Nobles as a, as a way of supporting you, would that give you more or less money than a $3 pledge at Patreon? Less. Less. And, and that, that's, that's... A, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because, and this is kind of what I put in the email. And I, part of the reason that we're even talking about this right now is, is as part of that conversation, he's like, you really should discuss this on the show. I think people would find it really interesting, which is how I started talking about it with Steve. And they were like, okay, fine, we'll bring it up. Um, when you're an author, you need to prove to your publisher that you have the ability to move copies, right? They're not going to offer you a contract if they don't feel there is enough interest in your work to make it worthwhile. So while I was on the hamster wheel, when someone would write me and say, hey, what's the best way to buy your book that's going to be the best for you? My answer at that time would be, um, well, just buy the latest book, you know, whatever the most recent book is, buy that, uh, whatever format or whatever is interest is best for you, because the the royalty uh, calculating matrix is so complicated that I and I know this the math pretty well. Even I can sometimes have a hard time figuring out how much I'm earning per book if it's like somebody who's buying it outside the United States and this whatever format and is it a foreign edition. It it can get really complex and it could take a year or more for that particular sale to ever filter its way back to me because of the way accounting and publishing works. But even at the 
highest level, like the most expensive thing would be like, if I have a hard book that manages to get all the way, there's enough copies of that hard book sold that it gets all the way into the 15% commission range. That's probably the most I'll ever earn on a book on a single copy. Uh, But not every one of my books sells enough in the hardback version to even make it to that, um, that layer of royalty. So in the, in the previous days when I was on the hamster wheel, I would just say, you know, please buy the latest book. But right now, because I don't have a new book out, I don't know if or when I'll ever sell another book traditionally, that it doesn't really much matter. And it's hard for me to go, oh, don't, if you really want to support me, support me on Patreon, don't buy a book. I mean, that just feels so shitty to say. But the truth of the matter is, a even a $3 pledge will put more into my own personal pocket than if somebody went out and bought the most expensive version of whatever book was available. And that that's not counting like, okay, some people will sell autographed books for like $50 or whatever. Those don't even count because they're not even like those are already bought by that seller and now they're reselling him. So that's not even the royalty came long ago when it was, you know, being sold for cheap. So sometimes people want to support me. They're not really into reading the books. And, and that's fine because I have fans both from as readers and then there's the, the whole podcast um, teaching side of things. So there are those who really appreciate and enjoy the podcast who want to support me and think, well, I'll go buy the books because that's a way for me to show that, you know, I'm, I'm supporting her. And I appreciate that. I'm not saying don't do it or anything like that, but it's probably not doing what they think it's doing because if they go and buy a paperback book from, you know, Barnes and Noble, or whatever, I might maybe see a dollar on that six or seven months from now. But to put a, a three, to put a $3 pledge on Patreon, that goes directly to me. There's no publisher taking the lion's share of the percentage, but to actually say these things can be very career damaging because as an author, if you're planning to publish through a publisher, you need the sales. So you're actually telling people to do something that's not in your own best interest <laughs> when you're trying to get the publisher to you know, give you another contract or whatever. But I'm not on that hamster wheel right now and I have no idea what the future holds. And so it's just, it's different for me and it's quite liberating in a way. So if you've ever wondered, sorry, if you've ever wondered, um, you know, how best you can support me. And you hear me say things like, oh, you know, I appreciate every pledge, you know, $3, a dollar, whatever, it all makes a difference. Well, that gives you some perspective on why it makes a difference. That even a $1 or $2 pledge is the equivalent of going out and you spending $12 or $14 on a paperback book as far as how it it gets on the back end. So there's a little behind-the-curtain information for you that, I don't know. I guess apparently it's interesting. So there. Yeah, I I find just the way the publishing business works to be absolutely fascinating. And I really enjoyed that conversation that we had four or five years ago or six years ago, whenever that was, seven years ago. I, I don't really remember that first time. And you were giving me some of these numbers and, and it was really eye-opening to me. And for me, the reason to buy a book is not so much to support an author, although that's a part of it, um, but it's to have a copy of the book, 
Like I want, I want to have copies of the books that you write. So that's, that's why I buy them. And at a certain level, if, if there are enough people who buy the book, if, if, if there's a scale that's reached, that's a different thing. But if you're the normal author, you know, not even a, a normal author, but an author who's not selling their books, um, on a, an end cap at the airport back when people <laughs> used to fly and, and, and buy books yeah. in airports. If you're not one of those authors, um, you're not going to, you're just not going to reach that, that scale. And so yeah. obviously the more copies that sell, the more reviews that are written, the more, et cetera, et cetera. And in the online world, that makes a difference. Um, but you really do have to reach a, a certain level of scale, and it, it is fascinating because I know in my own mind, and I'm, I'm not even going to use you as an example, there will be other creators who I like to support in various ways, and I will see something like a Patreon and, and go, ah, you know, I don't want to do this level of, of support. It doesn't seem like enough, but when you put it in that way, it's like that's more than going out and and buying and buying a book exactly than, than, than buying the book. It's it's uh, it's it's telling, and it's it's sad for the creators and the authors. And you know, I will. Taylor and I occasionally have these debates about the the virtue of indie publishing and 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 the reasons why indie publishing is is doing as well as it as it is and has done so well for a lot of people um you know it's a it's a completely different model but it is a model for people who can write at volume not yeah, people who, people who write um slowly and meticulously and really want to craft a novel the way that Taylor does yeah it's i don't i don't, I don't fit into any of the paradigms is that how you say the word um that currently exist. And so I'm going to, I am doing it as I've always done, which is just hack my own way through the jungle, which is not very productive and very tedious and very painful, but it's the only way that I know <laughs> I go off the beaten path. Yeah. So let's, let's say that you, you decided, Oh, I'm, I'm going to go indie and I'm just going to self publish my books and I'm going to publish one a year. What would, that would be a cause. <laughs> You're, you're, you're going to, what you're going to create is a single book a year. What do you think the effect of that would be? Oh, it would be like what? A, a, a speck, a microbe in the ocean. But for my fans, it would matter. Yes. And and well, so, it would matter, but in terms of algorithms and, um, I wouldn't you know, even exist. I would not even exist in terms of algorithms. Like I could put it up in the, you know, the online universe. And the only reason it would even register would be if I told all my readers that it will only be available on one day. <laughs> if you want to buy it, buy it this day, that's it. And everybody goes and buys it on the same day. And then the algorithms will go. No, oh, actually, hey, that would not bye -bye. work. And that would not work. And so for people who are out there listening, um, you know, a better way of doing it, and this is an absurd example, but if you told 10 people on Monday to buy it and 15 people on there Tuesday to buy it and yes. 20 people on Wednesday to buy it, if you were able actually to manipulate your, your sales like that, then 
you would reach then, a point yeah. where the algorithms would be tickled and, and, and that would be useful. But anyway, this, this whole, that part of this, the cause and effect part of it was my way of leading into today's topic. Oh my which... God, I totally missed it. I'm so dense. <laughs> so dense. <laughs> and Taylor, today we're going to be talking about cause and effect, not in selling books, writing and selling books, but in writing books from a craft perspective. This is true. So um, this episode is actually building off episode 223, where we talked about thought, action, speech, and gardening in February of 2020. Um, We've talked about thought, action, speech in other episodes as well, and um, I've gone into it. I, I don't, and I think there's one Hack the Craft episode on um, Patreon that goes into it in more detail, but it's been a while. And I'm coming to this because, you know, over the years, we've had a few concepts, like, I guess, rules that have become sort of so big or universal, they're almost like foundational principles. And we do come back to them often. One that we've harped on a lot more recently is purpose. When you know, every scene has to serve a purpose, dialogue has to serve a purpose, description has to serve a purpose. What is the purpose? Well, okay, so purpose, right? Another one that we've come back to often as like sort of this key foundational principle is character in motion. And we'll probably come back to it again. And there's a third one that we've kind of nibbled the edges of. But we've never really fully explored it as its own topic. And that concept is cause and effect. And we've discussed it, like we've discussed things underneath that umbrella. So we've we've talked about the thought action speech rule, which is based entirely on the concept of cause and effect. And we wrap knuckles over simultaneous actions, which is when we use as to join movements instead of putting them in chronological order. And that's totally a cause and effect thing. And the entire principle or basis of movie versus first person shooter is cause and effect. And the slow down motion of how to write action sequences is built on the rules of cause and effect. So it's come up a lot in terms of the actual discussion, but never in terms of being a guiding principle. And I got to thinking about this for a couple of reasons. One is um, we have this project going on um, through the Facebook group where we're trying to, um, through volunteers, uh, go back to all of the podcasts that we've done and actually break them down in a way that we can put them in a database. Like, cause sometimes we do these episodes and we don't always stick to the same topic or there'll be little snippets inside a conversation that veers off into something else. And so they're, they're useful for people who, you know, maybe are listening to them as a series or binging them or whatever, but not really so useful if you wanted to go back and only focus in on a specific topic. And I've been talking for years about building out this Hack the Craft program, and I'm, I'm overwhelmed by how much content I've already produced and I have no way to organize it. So part of this is I'm, I'm in the very, very early stages of asking for volunteers to to go back through them. And we're going to work off of, you know, specific tags for, you know, subject tags and just kind of find a format. So we're, I'm working with somebody to build the format that all the volunteers can use to to listen to these episodes and just kind of try and 
um, organized material in a, a useful module building sort of way. And it's been forcing me to think in terms of structure. And what are the, the foundations to these things that we talk about? And so that's one of the reasons why I'm focusing in on cause and effect and realizing that we actually really need to discuss this as a foundational principle. And the other is I was working on some of Steve's material and I hit this scene where there's this character who's introduced. Um, her name's Becca. And during this scene, there's this lot of fun banter between her and Reggie, who's the main character. And then it takes this turn where Becca, who's, real, who's Reggie's assistant slash business partner, starts discussing things with him and, and telling him things that I started getting frustrated when I was reading it. And, and Reggie's response to the things she was saying, I started getting really frustrated because it didn't make any sense to me. And it wasn't the actual words on the page that didn't make sense. That, that was, it's all, you know, correct. It was the content, right? The things they were saying seemed out of character and it, it, it was coming out of left field. And it, I was filling the margin with these like, why, how come, I don't understand type notes. And then after we got through the entire conversation, the narrative switches to Reggie's thoughts and he's kind of explaining some of his past and his way of thinking. And then all of my questions start getting answered. And so the conversation kind of made sense in a, a retroactive way. And so in this scene, the pieces of the puzzle were all there, but it was in my mind, I'm going, this is thought action speech. This is thought action speech in a, in a grander way. Um, but it wasn't thought action speech. And I'm like, well, this is also kind of like critical elements in scene openings where the details are just in the wrong order. And so for me as the reader to put proper context to the conversation, I had to know the things about Reggie before he went into that conversation. And that's a cause and effect issue. And so those two things got me thinking about this subject on a much larger scale. And the, the, the problem with trying to explain cause and effect in a very this is the way it is sort of way is that it's, it's not so easy to just lay it out in a writing hack like thought, action, speech, because once you start to get to the narrative level where you're looking at the words on a you know, page by page or even chapter by chapter, so much of what works and why it works and the order that it works is contextual. It's based on what you already know. It's based on what else is already going around on in the immediate sense. And so it's this puzzle where each pit feet, each piece only fits because of the other pieces that are interlocking with it. So it's really hard to go thought, action, speech, you know, when it comes to narrative, these, these longer pieces and, and what order information goes, but it's still cause and effect. So how do you break that down? Right. How, how do you, and I, and so I don't really have like a super clear cut answer for this episode, but I want to begin this discussion of cause and effect because it is such a foundational principle that we need to keep going back to it the same way we do with character and motion, the same day we do, the same way we do with thought, action, speech. It's like without this idea in our brains that cause and effect is what's guiding so many of the principles, it's easy to get hung up 
or focused on the technicality instead of the spirit behind the technicality, right? So with that in mind, if I had to articulate cause and, to effect, cause and effect into like a single rule that would apply for scene structure or narrative, and it's really important that I clarify here that when I'm talking about scene structure or narrative, I'm talking about small. I'm talking about it on, um, you know, in a multiple paragraph sense or a page level sense. I'm not talking about scene structure in terms of the whole story or the whole plot. This is when something's not working in a scene, like how it was when I was reading this material with between Reggie and Becca, where it didn't make sense until I hit the explanation after. The, the way I would explain it in that context, whether you're dealing with dialogue, narrative, inner dialogue, whatever, the rule would be past before present. And so what that means in practicality is that when it comes to actions, motivations, a response for which we don't yet have the explanation or the history for it to make sense, that explanation or history has to come first. The past has to come first before the present can make sense. And so in the, in the case of the particular scene that got me started on this, we would have needed to understand Reggie's frame of mind in terms of how he viewed his business, right? Why he ran it the way he did before he and Becca got into this big discussion about changes that he'd need to make if he wanted to stay solvent. But accomplishing that is where craft and pacing and story sense all comes into play. There's really no single right way to do it because how you integrate those thoughts before a conversation like that if, if it's not done right, it can feel just as confusing. Why are you telling me this right now? What does this have anything to do with the scene that we're in, right? And that's where story sense comes into play. That's where the craft comes into play, how you weave these elements into the story. And it's a form of foreshadowing so that by the time you actually hit those details in conversation or whatever, it all makes sense. And they're threads that have been built up, built up, built up. Sometimes, especially if you're someone who writes a little more, um, less plotty, more seat of the pantsy, you don't yourself even know these things until you hit them. And so those are the types of things you'd have to address on a second draft. You hit them there and you realize this is in the wrong spot. I need to get this up and I need to move this into this other area. And it's going to take some time and, and a bit of a challenge to get that interwoven in, right? So sometimes you do need to foreshadow things long before. Sometimes there's just no way to do that. And it requires um, interjection in the conversation for the character to have um, a moment of introspection or inner dialogue where they're kind of mulling things over before you get to that part of the sort of their thoughts are guiding the conversation. We've talked about that in podcasts before about how inner dialogue can guide a conversation. That would be a way to also solve this past before present issue for cause and effect in like a scene structure sort of way. Um, but, you know, it, it would be easier, I think, for me to explain this 
with specific examples. I don't want to use this scene with Becca and Reggie because there are other issues going on with it as well that make it not work. And I think it would be really um, easy to conflate those or it would take too much explanation to try and explain them out um, separately or whatever. And it would go all over the place. So don't want to use that particular scene. But I think that now that I am aware that this is a need, I'm going to start spotting it in the stuff that I'm reading. I mean, I'm reading my own books right now. I'm sure I'll find plenty in these earlier books of scenes where I can say, okay, here's an example of cause and effect that didn't work. And here's how it actually should have been done to read smoother. Sometimes you see this on a a page by page level. Sometimes it's even just within a few paragraphs where, or like, you know, smaller paragraphs that are just a sentence or two, where the order of the sentences need to be reversed, where we're getting the, the reason before the response, the past before the present, and so forth. So this is kind of just a, a meta discussion where we're just talking about the subject as something that we need to, to talk about more and bring in more and that I'm going to try and bring in more, but to highlight it because it is such a critical foundational concept to the whole idea of being able to shortcut the years of trial and error and getting things right, you just know cause and effect. Just like, you know, character in motion, right? These are key foundational principles. And so that's really where I was going with this episode. And it's interesting, you, you mentioned the idea of using inner dialogue to guide conversation. And that's, that's from a show that we had uh, a while ago. And I have, since we've had that discussion, it's, like when I see it in books now, it just pops out at me and it's like, oh, that's a really great example of doing that and tying something together that wouldn't make sense if that part wasn't in there. And I know exactly what you're talking about in, in my story and a lot of that stuff that's in there later that explains it is only because when I went through and read it, it's like, this makes no sense at all. <laughs> And right, so I need to yeah. I need to put that in there, but I didn't put it in the right place because I didn't know the past before the present rule. That's not really right. a rule yet, but we're just starting well, to talk about it. We're working on it, yeah. And and it, it might change to something else. As like sometimes as I'm looking at material, kind of like we did with the elements order, and and I, there was no room for character and motion in the critical. And I was like, uh, I should have thought of this sooner, but um, yes, you can show these critical elements while the character is doing something as well. So um, it may be one of those things where I have to come back and revisit it because these are concepts, like I've said a few times, I don't really think in words. I think in ideas, I think in, in concepts. And so as I'm trying to articulate them, I sometimes don't always get it. Don't, it doesn't run through my interpreter <laughs> the way that it should. And so we may end up having to come back and revise. But right now, that's where I'm going with it is past before present. And, and this is just sort of an introduction to the, to the idea of, of, of something that we're going to be spending more time on. Yes. I don't know when, because it's going to come up as I read things, but it's just such a key foundational principle. I, I was like, why have we never done a show pointing it out that this is one of the major concepts that you have to understand for all the rest of this teaching to make sense. So here we are. All right. So that is it for this week's episode. We thank you guys so much for being here and we will be back in your ear again next Tuesday. Yes, we will. And I want to give a big shout out. Thank you to Ian, who's the one who encouraged me to talk about 
the whole thing with the you know books and Patreon and all of that. So thank you, Ian, for being a listener, and thank you for pushing me in that direction. Really appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Ian, because it was a fascinating discussion that uh, we had the opportunity to have at the beginning of the show. See you next week.